This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Do you ever wish that you had more time in your day? What would you do with an extra hour all to yourself? Would you go for a run? Take a nap? Read a book? The possibilities are endless. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, deal with overthinking, alter negative behaviors, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash heartwisdom today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash heartwisdom. Welcome to the Jack Cornfield Heart Wisdom Hour. We are delighted to share with you Jack's innate common sense wisdom and his clear open heart. If you are interested in supporting Jack's podcast, go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Jack. So please let yourself sit comfortably and at ease and listen not so much to remember what's said, but to let yourself recognize if something that's spoken rings true to your own experience, to the one who knows in you, to the place of your own wisdom. The rest you can just let go. So we've completed the first day of our retreat and for everyone, those experienced and those newer, the first day has body aches and all the tensions that you carry with you over the weeks and months that build up of conflict and difficulty that get stored in the body at certain moments. And then when you sit, they start to come out and the shoulders are tight and the neck hurts and the back hurts. And it's not that you're sitting wrong, it's just your body is saying, hey, remember me? Here I am or sleepiness. You start to notice, you know why you're sleepy. Because you're exhausted in many cases. <laughs> You've been running around, finally you came to the retreat. Ah, thank you for sitting down, taking a rest. <coughs> or your mind, there's a sign in the, uh, well, it was a cartoon in the New Yorker. It showed a car crossing the Utah vast desert and the roadside billboard read, your own tedious thoughts next 200 miles, right? <laughs> it's kind of like meditation. You know, or your fears or longings or hopes, so all the stuff of life comes in you, but it's hard in the beginning to settle down, at least for some. And then the doubt comes, well, why did I do this? You know, maybe I should have gone to the Bahamas or something <laughs> like that. And yet also something in us knows that this is important, that it's important to be with ourselves and to, in being with ourselves, to open to our own life, to the life we've been given. And in the meetings with students and practitioners today, the groups that um, we had, I was very deeply touched. 
I was touched partly because this group had some folks in it who had been meditating for a number of years, done a few retreats or more, and had some sense of practice. And so there was a graciousness, a good spirit in this first day. And at the same time, there were people dealing with cancer or the illness or death of a loved one or the difficulties with the aging parents or 12-step work and addictions work or huge life changes or blindness or you know stress in all different kinds of ways. And yet there was this spirit of graciousness. Um, and I could feel somehow in the group as people spoke about being here and knowing how to be present, there was also some kind of support that was unspoken, but there between us. I was teaching in San Francisco a few years ago with Pema Chodron one evening in a great big auditorium of several thousand people. Um, and after we did this teaching on compassion and forgiveness was part of our theme, uh, we took questions and a woman raised her hand and in a very raw and very agonized way talked about the suicide of her lover a couple or a few weeks before. And um, the grief was palpable. And suicide's a very complicated thing because there is tremendous loss and grief, but also there's anger and outrage. How dare you? And there's guilt and should I have done something different? And all these complicated emotions. And Pema just talked to her about holding the whole of it, everything with compassion. But I could also feel her loneliness, her aloneness in it, that it had thrown her out of her world. And so I asked, I said, how many in this room have had a family member or someone you're really close to commit suicide. And 200 people stood up, maybe 8% or 7%, whatever it was. Um, and I asked this young woman just to look around and see them and that those who'd been through this to look at her um, with whatever understanding they carried. And it was the most moving moment of the evening. And people began to weep without anything more spoken. Because it was as if her measure of sorrows, her difficulty, was being known and recognized with compassion and understanding and attention by the whole community of those who surrounded her. And if you reflect on being here on this retreat, and you reflect on people that you think of as gracious, wise, dignified, loving, courageous, even in the midst of the difficulties of your life, you can sense that, like those people, this practice that you're doing in this retreat is an invitation for that same wisdom and courage and graciousness and compassion to grow in you as you sit with what Zorba calls the whole catastrophe of your humanity. 
And the point isn't to become a Buddhist, spare your friends and family, <laughs> but to become a Buddha, to find that unshakable part of a Buddha, that, that spacious awareness within yourself. And it's not just for yourself. As Zen Master Thich Nhat Hanh said, when the crowded Vietnamese refugee boats met with storms and pirates, if everyone panicked, all would be lost. But if even one person on the boat remained centered and calm, it was enough. It showed the way for everyone else to survive. So your depth, your capacity, your presence becomes also the gift for the loved ones or the community or the world community that you're a part of. Now, the best of modern neuroscience with its teachings on neuroplasticity that the brain and nervous system actually grows every day until the very end of your life matches with the deep practices, 2,000 and more years of Buddhist training, what the Dalai Lama calls the science of mind of the Buddha. Um, and we can use these trainings to awaken, to change our perspective, to live in this wise way. We start, all of us, seated here just with the fact of being human, which is bizarre. It is weird. It is. To be incarnate is the strangest thing. I mean, you got this body in mind. Anybody know how you got here, really? And then you're born, and you come out, and you, you know, learn to move around and so forth. And you have this vehicle that's your body that has a little bit of fur, at least that what's left of it anyway, in certain places, little patches of fur and a hole at one end into which you stuff dead plants and animals regularly, <laughs> grind them up with the bones that hang down and glug them through the tube, and these wiggly things at the end, and eyes. I mean, look at that. Is that strange? Eyes and ears. I mean, and little bits of claws left. I mean, it's a, and then you ambulate by falling one direction and catching yourself. <coughs> bipedal and you fall another direction and you catch yourself. That's how you get around on this planet. How did you get in there, right? And you know it. You look in the mirror and you notice that you've aged. But you don't feel that much older, right? And that's because it's only your body that's aged, but not the awareness that sees, not the one who knows. And there's some sense, oh, this body is aging, but that's not who we really are. So we start with this mystery of incarnation. And then if we look honestly at it, as the Buddha did when he saw the heavenly messengers the first time he saw a sick person or an old person or a corpse. Remember when you first saw a corpse? And he says, did you never see in this world a man or woman 80, 90, 100 years old, frail, crooked as a gable roof, bent down, with tottering steps, infirm, broken teeth, gray, scanty hair or none, wrinkled with blotched limbs. And did the thought never come to you that you too are subject to this decay? Did you never see a man or woman grievous, grievously ill, terribly sick, and he describes all this ways, and did the thought never occur to you that you too are subject to illness? Did you never see the corpse of a man or woman after a day or two or three beginning to decompose? 
this body and return to the earth? And did the thought never come to you that you too are subject to death, that you cannot escape it? So these were the first of the Buddha's revelations. All right, we have this incarnation, and there's some built-in problems with it. Yes? You get that. And he saw that there was a kind of suffering in human life that people often didn't want to deal with. Many were lost and confused and frightened, and some were freer. And he wanted to understand this problem of human suffering. And in his enlightenment, in his revelation under the Bodhi tree, he formulated like the great physician of the world the the diagnosis and the cause and a cure for human suffering, which he called the Four Noble Truths. And these will, we will teach over these four days for you in the evenings. The first noble truth is that there is dukkha, and that dukkha is inevitable. Dukkha is sometimes translated as that which is hard to bear or loss. Sometimes it's suffering. Sometimes it's translated as stress. He said, what is dukkha? Old age, sickness, death, sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, despair, or suffering? Not getting what one desires is suffering. Getting one what doesn't desire is suffering. Having things change is suffering. In fact, Human life, every human life, contains a measure of dukkha. Anybody not have? Just checking out here to see, make sure we're in the same ballpark here. All right. So here we have dukkha, and there are two kinds of dukkha. There is the dukkha that is the pain of the world. And we live in a comfort culture, so this is particularly important to understand. And that is old age, sickness, death, physical pain. There's praise and blame, gain and loss, pleasure and pain. Everybody has a life woven with these things. To be human is to experience these. So this is one part of dukkha, the inevitability of pain. Anybody not have? The inevitability of loss or change. The inevitability of blame. Those are just the givens. But then there's a whole huge other category of dukkha that is the suffering that that we make as human beings because we can't bear our humanity. We can't bear the way things are. So we get frightened about it, and we build fortresses and put guards around them, and we get greedy because we're afraid we're going to lose everything, which we are, you know, and we don't want to deal with it. And as a result, we despoil the world. We have, you know, global warming and the list of endangered species, you know, the Malay Bindurong and the Malabar civet and the Mediterranean monk seal and all species of rhino and all the great apes and the golden lemur and 12 species of antelope and 15 of turtles, and I could go on all night, you know. And we have continuing warfare and racism and in, in this environmental destruction and, and 
40 million cheap people, children in this country, it says in the Wall Street Journal, who are taking antidepressants, antipsychotics, um, and ADHD med uh, medications, 40 to 50 million of our children. Um, something not quite right. So there's the inevitable difficulties of life, and then there's all that we add to it. I mean, how many wars are going on now? The U.S. is a warlike nation. We've been having wars for centuries now. Um, and we're, we're in the game. We're continuing to do it to the tragic loss of, uh, of our soul, <coughs> souls and the souls of so many people. Then there's the cause. That's, that's, the, that's the truth of dukkha. I think the room got sober as I'm talking, but it's true. Then there's the cause. And the cause is clinging, greed, grasping. And out of that hatred, you know, protection and deep ignorance, ignorance of who we really are and of how the world is and of what makes happiness. John Taylor Gatto, New York City Teacher of the Year, stood up in front of the school board and parents in this huge assembly and castigated them for the soul murder of one million black and Latino children. Think of the things that are killing us as a nation, he said. Drugs, brainless competition, recreational sex, the pornography of violence, gambling, alcohol, and the worst pornography of all, lives devoted to buying things, addiction as a religion. So the cause of suffering for humans is greed, fear, confusion, hatred, all these states that we know. Then, fortunately, it's not the all bad news. There's an end to this. There's liberation. There is freedom, and it's there for every single being. Freedom of spirit. I remember working in the prisons and having people, you know, who'd done prison dharma work for a long time, people who'd been in for 25, 30 years saying, you know, they can, they can put my body in prison, but they can't have my spirit. And you see Nelson walk, Mandela walk out of 27 years of Robben Island prison with such magnanimity and graciousness and compassion and, and forgiveness and vision that he not only changed South Africa, he changed the whole world's idea of what's possible for us as humans. And that is possible for you. Your spirit is free. And so we'll talk about the causes of suffering and, and the liberation that's possible. The awareness that you learn as you sit and walk. The spacious attention that can allow for all of your humanity without being lost in it, without being frightened by it. Like the storms that appear in the sky come and go, and here you are, the space of awareness itself. And that there's a path to this, the fourth noble truth, the middle path it's called, the, the path of mindfulness, of presence, of awakening to the way things are, the path of freedom. And it's then delineated as the eightfold path. You'll hear about it. So when I first heard the four noble truths, even though in certain ways it's rather terrifying, I was relieved 
as you might be, because somebody actually named it. This is the way that it is, this human incarnation. Because often we think that our suffering is happening because we're doing it wrong. You're not doing it wrong if you're aging or getting sick or have loss or have pain. It's just part of the ride. You know, you go and you get the ticket. And part of it's pleasure and part of it's pain. And there's almost unbearable beauty and there's love and joy and tangerines and sea otters and baked Alaskas and, you know, majestic things in life. It's not like all life is suffering. But woven together with it, there is praise and blame, gain and loss, love and its ending. There's pleasure and pain. And to be wise somehow is to say, how do we move through this humanity for ourselves, for the people we love, for the justice and care of this beautiful world? And that's really what we're doing here, is to learn to do this with some dignity and courage and presence. James Baldwin puts it this way. He says, I imagine one of the reasons people cling to their hate and prejudice so stubbornly is they sense that once hate is gone, they will be forced to deal with their own pain. So that if we don't acknowledge the way things are and our measure of tears, our loneliness, our fears, then all of a sudden what we do is put it on the Muslims or the communists or the immigrants or the people who look like that or speak like that. You know what I'm talking about. And we have the enemy du jour, Maybe it's Pakistan this week, I don't know. But it makes you weep because it has nothing to do with that. It has to do with our capacity to bear witness to this life with its majesty and its beauty and its tears with some dignity and graciousness. And the world desperately needs someone to do that. And you know who that is? as Miss Piggy would say, moi, you know. Ellie Wiesel, Nobel laureate. Suffering confers neither privileges nor rights. It all depends how you use it. If it use it to increase the anguish of yourself or others, you are degrading, even betraying it. And yet the day will come when we shall understand that suffering can elevate human beings. God help us to bear our suffering well. So we sit here and we have these amazing tools to work with our humanity, with the joy. Some people are afraid of joy and ecstasy. It scares them. Some people are afraid of pain. It doesn't matter. With mindfulness and loving kindness or mercy or compassion, it's possible to be present for your own humanity and for this world as it is. And that means that we can do it physically. And I have this passage, I won't read the whole thing, from an amazing woman named Darlene Cohen, who died this year, a Zen teacher, who was crippled by rheumatoid arthritis. And she writes, people ask about how I could bear the physical pain and the crippling. How could I encourage myself? And I answer that my healing comes from my bitterness and despair and terror. It comes from the shadow. I dip down into that muck, she says, and I don't want to a million times it calls, and each time I resist. 
But finally, it becomes so powerful, it pulls me down, kicking and screaming, and I surrender. And immediately the release begins. First peace, and then a flood of presence and vitality and healing energy, because I am with the world the way that it is. A million times, and I say, take me, I'm yours. And this is what has enriched my life and allowed me to live a vital life in spite of the crippling of my body. But here, so, you know, your physical pain comes and you soften to it. You open, you say, yes, this is part of the body. You hold it like a crying child. You can't fix it. But if you soften and open, it will move, it will change, it will grow, it will shrink. And you learn to tend it and be with it with compassion. Just like your joy that may open, the pleasure in your body. But it's not just the physical, as we know. It's also the stuff in the mind, the loneliness and the boredom and the tedium and the repeated top ten tunes that come back. Oh my God, somebody change the channel quickly, you know. There was a woman on a retreat with me here who hated walking meditation. Can't do it. Just so restless, just hate it. I tried different things, walk slower, walk faster, go outside, close your eyes and take a few steps and get in your body that way and then open them, you know, not the whole time closed. Um, all different things, walk in the bowling alley, you know, have a little tea first, nothing worked. Finally said, all right, there's one solution. Stop sitting and just walk, you'll figure it out. <laughs> so she wrote me this note, dear Jack, Long walking meditation assignment complete, thank you. Now I can meditate while moving. I thought I might discover why I've been so resistant, but circumstances taught me much more. I chose to walk, we negotiated, she was gonna walk all day. She ended up walking half the day. I chose to walk in the annex walking room because it's small, beautiful, and usually quiet. Today, however, it was noisy as hell. There was some guy in there walking like the little engine that could, wearing boots, noisy boots. Well, thought I, surely he'll be gone when the walking period ends. No such luck. This madman pounded his way through an hour and a half nonstop, except when he paused to drink or remove a noisy layer of clothing. I tried metta. Surely he must have a lot of pain to be so driven. Then I realized that I wanted to kill the SOB. And I stood there and I noted, hating, hating. This was in the world too. And then I just stood in the middle of the room and wept, the ocean of tears. Finally, I got to the point where I realized whatever problem he had was his and not mine. And after that, I got quiet and he was just sound. And so I walked and breathed and he paced and pounded and pretty soon it was all the same to me his noise, my breath, the movement of my body. And after an hour and a half, he left. And then it was incredibly quiet, which was different, but not as much better as I would have expected, mostly just different. I think this mindfulness in walking actually works. So you do it, and you tend, and you stay with the joys and the sorrows, little by little, doesn't happen all at once. 
a man wrote to the IRS, I haven't been able to sleep knowing that I cheated on my taxes last year in 2009. Since I failed to fully disclose my earnings on my return, I've enclosed a check, a cashier's check, mind you, for $2,000. If I still can't sleep, I'll send the rest. (laughs) This is our humanity. You know how it works. And yet, as you do it, this is Tamara Engel, wonderful yogi and practitioner who died recently of cancer. And she says, my days are short, and as I grow weaker, I experience so much gratitude for my meditation. Not only the joy and ease it brought, but the hard parts. For every bored and restless sitting, and every fearful fantasy, and every pain and ache I sat through, every itch I didn't scratch, was a training for kindness, a training for the muscle for bearing witness, for the trusting spirit that carries me now as I face my death. And so we're really training ourselves for the big game. And it's not just our death, but it's the, it's the world that we're in at this point. You know, we're in a world that is calling for wisdom and understanding and courage and compassion. And what happens is that compassion itself is really natural. Like that image of that woman in standing up in San Francisco with Pema Chodron and 3,000 people, as soon as 200 people stood up and gazed at her and said, we too, we too, the whole room changed. And sometimes, you know, it's in terrible ways. I've seen it in the refugee camps in Cambodia and in the Burma border and in Palestine and my own teachers offering teachings in the places that were really, really terrible, changing people's hearts, like Nelson Mandela or Aung San Suu Kyi. But sometimes it's in small ways. The New York Times had this article about somebody whose car broke down several times on the freeways and he, and he said he needed a tire iron or something to be, over the past few years. He said, nobody stops. Even the tow trucks wouldn't stop. The only people who stopped for me were immigrants, Ethiopians, Salvadorians, Filipinos. They were the ones that stopped. He said, and somebody came and changed my tire and helped me, and I, I didn't have the right tools. I borrowed this car, and I wanted to give him 20 bucks. And he wouldn't take it. And I went to his car, and I passed it to his daughter, who spoke English. And, and, and she, I made her take it, and I went back to my car. And they yelled out, are you hungry? And the daughter came running with a tamale for me to eat, because I hadn't had lunch. And they went away. They were waving. And I opened the tamale, and the $20 bill was wrapped in it with a little note that said, one day you, next day me. It's the smallest things. It's not just the great magnificent ones. Donations for the Haiti earthquake last year poured into the American Red Cross from a range of sources, but nothing stood out like the coins and crumpled dollar bills that spilled from one envelope. The gift, $14.64, came from the pockets of homeless people at a downtown Baltimore shelter with the note that said, we are worried about our brothers and sisters in Haiti. Or another note that someone found that was given, actually, fortunately, by somebody um, 
because it happened this way. He said, if somebody smiles at me on the way to the bridge, I won't jump. It's not all the great magnificent things, although those are terribly important, the Nelson Mandela's and Aung San Suu Kyi, but it's the way that we touch one another as human beings and the way that we touch ourselves. One more story, tiny bit more. From Oriah Mountain Dreamer, who's a poet and an acquaintance. She was teaching some meditation seminar. At the end of the day, she says, a small, thin woman in an oversized parka came up, introduced herself as Isabel, and said, can I do this meditation on my own? I said, yes, you can, but it helps to be part of a group. And then she said, but what will it give me? What will I get if I do this every day? And her tone took on a whining quality. I felt my irritation rise. How fast will it work? I mean, will I feel a difference after a week? How will I know it's working? This was the thing I most detested. The quest for the quick fix, the guaranteed outcome, simple answer. Do this and you get that. My sons were waiting for me at their school and I just wanted to leave. So I took a deep breath, looked directly at Isabel, set down my knapsack, and tried to slow down my words, thinking maybe if I spoke slower, I would feel more patient. Well, I said, meditation is more a process than a goal-oriented activity. My best advice is just try it and be patient with yourself. You know how we are. We always teach people what we need to learn. I picked up my bag and wanted to get out while I was still feeling virtuous for not snapping her head off. But as I started to move away, Isabel suddenly reached out, grabbed my arm with this surprising strength. But what I really want to know, she said, her voice rising in a crescendo that bordered on panic, is will it help me find God? I mean, if I meditate, will I have an experience of something or somebody, anybody out there listening, someone with me? And a wave of desperation swept out from her through me, and I was surprised to find my eyes fill with tears. This woman wasn't looking for an easy answer or guaranteed formula because she was lazy. She didn't want a simple plan because she was unable to think critically about what would work. She wanted something she knew would work and work quickly because she was hanging on by her fingernails. She wanted something that would work in a week because she was afraid that she simply wasn't going to make it through months or years. And I put my hand gently over Isabel's where it gripped my arm. It's okay, Isabel. We all feel desperate at times, I said. Nobody does it by themselves. We all need help. And her hand relaxed a little beneath mine, and she started to cry. And we talked for a while. There is no them. There is no other. There's only us. And when I left, I did not leave one of them, a participant, another person. I said goodbye to a family member, a human being doing the best she can, searching for the same home all our hearts long for. It's not about being idealistic. It's not about perfecting your personality or changing. That's too late, right? It's not about changing your body. I mean, it's fine to go to the gym and do therapy and things. You need it, but it's not really about that. It's about something so much bigger and more beautiful and more meaningful.
not so idealistic. If anything, it's about the perfection of your love for this life. If you can sit quietly after difficult news, if in financial downturns you remain perfectly calm, if you can see your neighbors travel to fantastic places without a twinge of jealousy, if you can happily eat whatever is put on your plate, if you can fall asleep after a day of running around without a drink or a pill, if you can always find contentment just where you are, you are probably a dog, right? (laughs) We have all these ideas about being some great enlightened. I mean, it's going to work and change you. It doesn't change you in that way. It changes your love. It changes your capacity to accept in an honorable way, the, the liberation and the sorrow, the tears and the beauty. How far you go in life, writes George Washington Carver, depends on, being, on your being tender with the young, compassionate with the aged, sympathetic with the striving, and tolerant of the weak and the strong, because someday in life, you will have been all of these. It's not somebody else, it's us. And so our practice is an invitation to meet the mystery of dukkha, the first noble truth that is part of our life, and beauty and joy and freedom, to meet them with a open heart, the great heart of compassion, which is your Buddha nature, and with the spacious awareness that is always here, undying, cannot be taken from you, your fundamental freedom that is your true nature. We've all seen it because it's so much a part of us in our life. There's a wonderful thing that happens when love meets pain or suffering, it turns into compassion. It turns from care or love in some kind of open, connected way. And it becomes this heart of compassion that resonates with the troubles or the sorrow of another. And somehow in this, awaken some deep and sacred connection. And maybe you can feel it, a little moment of the beauty of that in the story you heard or the story you told. And it's this spirit of compassion wedded with awareness that the world needs so much, and that we are practicing together. So as you reflect quietly with eyes closed now, let yourself think of several people who really love you, care for you, and remember them, picture them, imagine that they could stand around you and see you on this retreat, this moment. 
these people who care about you so much. And as you imagine these loved ones, dear friends, and imagine them looking at you, imagine that they could also see, imagine, think of, picture any way you can, that they could also see into your heart and life. They know you and see your measure of sorrows, the burdens and hidden pain and struggles that each human being carries, the difficulties of your life that you may not have even given voice to. And picture their eyes gazing at you with your struggles and all their care for you and the well-wishing that would come from them, which are the traditional phrases of compassion, the source of the traditional teachings of compassion. May you be held in compassion. Your tears and anxiety, the grief and longing and love, your whole being be held in the mercy and tenderness. And they would wish this for you. They would wish as you sit and walk and practice here that the spirit of love, loving kindness, and great compassion of tenderness be with you. Now imagine you can even do it. You can even place a hand on your heart or your belly. Imagine that you can drink that in, their care, their love, their compassion. And that with your measure of joys and sorrows over these days, pleasures and pains, opening and closing, that you can hold yourself and all that arises with the great heart of a Buddha, with compassion, mercy, wakefulness, tenderness. Because you can, you know this is possible. It is your birthright. It is your own true nature. One day, writes Alice Walker, I was sitting there like a motherless child, which I was, and it came to me that feeling of being a part of everything. And I knew that if I cut a tree, my arm would bleed. And I laughed and I cried and I run all around the house. When it happens, you just can't miss it. And you know it. You know it as deeply as you know your own name. So practice with this first noble truth, with dignity and wakefulness, 
and the spirit of compassion for all that arises.